Hello, Ars Technica listeners. This is the latest serialization of an episode of the After On podcast here on Ars. Instead of the normal two to three segments, we're splitting this one into four parts starting today because this is a long one. My guest is a neuroscientist, a serial New York Times bestselling author, and a very widely followed podcaster. But I probably most often hear him described as a public intellectual. His name is Sam Harris. Sam is a controversial thinker. And a very original one, as evidenced by the fact that he outrages fairly large factions on both the left and the right with respectable frequency. Folks on the right dislike that he's vehemently anti-Trump, and also that most of his political beliefs are fairly left of center. As for his left-wing detractors, Sam fiercely opposes most of the more strident politically correct elements on campuses today because he believes they stifle debate in ways that could lead to a real crisis of free speech and free thought. He's also profoundly concerned about religiously motivated terrorism and expresses his concerns in ways that have rankled folks on the left, including Ben Affleck, who instigated a fairly notorious public brawl with Sam, which we discussed toward the beginning of the opening segment of our conversation today. As with the episode we serialized last week on ours with UCSF neuroscientist Adam Ghazali, this is an early podcast from my archive, which means it's about a year old. So I hope you'll forgive the fact that I'm still a bit of a novice interviewer here. And with that, let's get started. So Sam, thank you so much for joining me here at Tom Merritt's lovely home studio. Yeah, happy to do it. You were a guest on the Art of Charm podcast about a year ago, and they asked you to describe what you do in a single sentence, and you said, I think in public, which I thought was a very elegant way of putting it. I was hoping you might elaborate on that, and in this case, feel free to use as many sentences as you wish. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that back to me because I would have totally forgotten that description. It's a useful one. Increasingly, I'm someone who's attempting to have hard conversations about what I consider some of the most important questions of our time. So the intersection of philosophy, particularly moral philosophy and science and public policy and just things in the news, topics like race and terrorism, the link between, you know, Islam and jihadism and things that are in the news, but that have, uh, when you begin to push on these issues, they run very, very deep into just the the core of human identity and how we want our politics to proceed and the influence of technology on our lives. So there's just, you can almost, you pull one of these threads and you sort of, everything that people care about starts to move. Yeah, there's a great deal of interconnection. And I'd say, and correct me if this is wrong, but I'd say you started thinking in public in earnest, perhaps back in 2004, with the release of your, your first book, The End of Faith, in which you argued stridently against all types of organized religion and in favor of atheism. It peaked at number four, was it, on the New York Times bestseller list or thereabouts? You know, I don't even remember. It was on for, I think, 33 weeks, but I I think four sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you got out there in in a big way with a book. You've since written, is it four more bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers since then? Yeah. That that designation means less and less, as it turns out. But um, I mean, there there are bestsellers, and there are bestsellers. There are. Yeah, yeah. There are the bestsellers that bounce off the list, which most of mine have been, uh, and then there are those that stay on forever. So, uh, but yeah, it, I've had five that have hit the list. Yeah. And what's intriguing to me is that quite recently you have developed a wildly successful podcast, and I was hoping you could characterize 
the reach that the podcast has attained compared to that of these very, very successful series of, of books that you did? Yeah, the numbers are really surprising and don't argue for the health of, of books, frankly. A very successful book in hardcover. You know, your book comes out in hardcover first normally. Some people go directly to paperback, but if you are an author who cares about the future of your book and reaching lots of people, you, you publish your, your hardcover and you are generally very happy to sell 100,000 books in hardcover over the course of that first year before it goes to paperback. Indeed ecstatic. That would yeah. probably put you in the top percentile of, of all books published by major publishers. Oh, yeah. And that is very likely going to hit the bestseller list. You know, maybe if you're a diet book, you need to sell more than that. But, you know, if you, if you sold 10,000 in your first week, depending on what else is happening, you, you almost certainly have a bestseller. And, you know, in the best case, you could sell 200,000 books or, or 300,000 books in hardcover. And that's, that's a newsworthy achievement. And then there's the one one hundredth of 1% that sell millions of, of, of copies. You know, Malcolm Gladwell is one of the, the best-selling authors of all time, really, or at least of our lifetime. And he sells millions of books, but he doesn't sell tens of millions of books in any, you know, I mean, ultimately he might, but in, not in any period of, of a few years, right? So, you know, with a book, I could reasonably expect to reach 100,000 people in a year, and then maybe some hundreds of thousands over the course of a decade, right? So all my books together now have sold, so now it's, we're talking uh, six books. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I'm pretty sure I haven't reached 2 million people um, with those books, uh, somewhere between uh, a million and, and 2 million. But with my podcast, I reach that many people in a day. Right, and these are long-form interviews, and sometimes it's standalone. Sometimes it's just me just talking about what I think is important to talk about for, you know, an hour or two. Uh, but often I'm I'm speaking with a with a very smart guest, and and we can go very deep on any topic we care about. And again, this is not like going on CNN and speaking for six minutes in, in attempted sound bites, and then you're gone. This is people are really listening in depth. And the podcast is now 50 million downloads a month. I don't know how many people that is, but I'm pretty sure it's at least 2 million people. And so if we were to clone you in two right now, and one of the Sam Harris's that we ended up with was to record a podcast, and the other Sam Harris was to write your entire literary output, who would require more time? Oh, yeah. yeah well, that, that's the other thing. Forget about the time it takes to write a book, right? Which in, in some cases is years, in some cases is months, depending on how long the book is and, and, and how research-driven it is. But it's a lot of time. It's a, it's a big commitment to write a book. Once it's written, you hand it into your publisher and it takes 11 months for them to publish it. So there's, a, there's that wait, you know, and, and then... There's a lack of immediacy. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, you know, that, that in, increasingly, that, that makes less and less sense. Both the time it takes to do it and the time it takes to publish it don't compare favorably with podcasting. You know, in defense of writing, there, there are certain things that are, are still best done in written form. Nothing I said has really any application to what you're doing. I mean, you're writing novels, right? And so that the, reading a novel is an experience that people still want to have. Yes. But what I'm doing in nonfiction uh, that's primarily argument-driven, right? 
there are other formats in which to get the argument out. And I'm still, you know, I, I'm still under a book contract. I'm, I still plan to, to write books because I still love to read books. And taking the time to really say something as well as you can affects everything else you do. It affects the stuff you can say extemporaneously in a conversation like this as well. So I still value the, the process of writing and, and, and taking the time to think you know, that carefully about things. The thing that is striking, though, is the extraordinary efficiency that the podcast has become as a way for you and many others to disseminate ideas in terms of the hours that you put into the creation of it, which are non-trivial. I'm learning that as a as a very new podcaster myself. It ain't easy to research and put one of these things together. But compared to a book, it's just there's just incredible leverage there. Now, another thing, speaking of large audiences, I believe I read somewhere that you were uh, featured in the most heavily watched Bill Maher video clip of all time. Do you know if that statistic is accurate? I suspect it, it still is accurate. It was at the time. I mean, it, was, it was the most viral thing that ever got exported from the show. And you were discussing Islamophobia with the then-future Batman. Yeah. And why do you suppose that clip became so widespread. I mean, Bill Maher is no stranger to controversy. The exchange between you and Ben Affleck and between Maher and Ben Affleck did become quite heated. But in any given month, there are many interactions on cable news and on Sunday talk shows that are at least as lively. What do you think it was about that that made it go so widespread? And also, if you characterized it, if you care to just characterize it briefly for those who haven't seen it. It was a combination of things. It was the topic. It was the fact that it was a star of Ben Affleck's caliber going kind of nuts and going nuts in a way that was very polarizing to the audience. So what, what happened briefly is I, I was actually on not to talk about Islam or jihadism or terrorism or anything uh, related to this topic. I, I, I was on to talk about my book on meditation, uh, Waking Up, you know, where I was trying to put our spiritual concerns, our contemplative concerns on a rational footing. And um, it just so happened that, I mean, this is this is a hobby horse that Bill and I have ridden for a, a number of years talking about the unique need for reform in Islam. Uh, you know, I have an argument against all faith-based religion, but part of my argument is, is to acknowledge that religions are not the same. They teach different things, they, they emphasize different points, and, it, you know, to its discredit and to the reliable immiseration of millions of people, Islam emphasizes uh, intolerance to free speech and intolerance to uh, political equality between the sexes and um, a rather direct connection between uh, suicidal violence and martyrdom and, and hence all the problems we see throughout the Muslim world at the moment and our collision with it. So in any case, that topic came up of uh, Islam and jihadism in the middle of this interview, and Ben Affleck jumped in. I mean, he, clearly he had been prepared by somebody to hate me because his his intrusions into into my interview with with Bill were otherwise inexplicable. Because he was sort of at my throat even before the topic of Islam came up. I was, I was still talking about meditation, and he and he said something snide uh, again in a in a a, a mid show interview that is normally protected from the intrusions of the rest of the panel. So. Um, it was it was it was weird, and then the thing just lit up with him seemingly completely un- misunderstanding what Bill and I were saying, but doing it in in an increasingly adamant and and ultimately quite a heated way. And so he was unhinged, 
and not making any sense from my point of view. And he, and he was calling us racists and bigots. And, and in some ways, yeah. proving the very points that you were oh, making. Oh, yeah in, yeah, in every way. I mean, uh, yeah. my point was, listen, we, we get, uh, people get emotionally hijacked on this issue. They, can, they're not, they don't actually follow the logic of what is being said. I'm criticizing ideas, not people. It's a, Islam is a religion uh, subscribed to, to one or another degree, by people who call themselves Muslims. But... We have to speak specifically about the, the consequences of specific beliefs, right? And so it's a, it becomes incredibly relevant to know what percentage of people think dying in defense of the faith is the best thing that could possibly happen to you, or that apostates should be killed, right? So we're talking about the consequences of ideas, and there are many, many millions of Muslims who would repudiate both of those ideas. And, and that, so obviously I'm not talking about them when I'm talking about the problem of jihadism or the a belief in martyrdom or apostasy. And so he proved himself totally incapable of following the plot, just as I went as I was talking about that very problem and and went berserk. And the most depressing thing about that encounter was to see how many people on the left, and in particular apologists for Islam and 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 so-called moderate Muslims, who viewed his performance as just kind of the the height of ethical wisdom, right? Like he had unmasked my and Bill's racism, you know, like as, as though Islam, as though being Muslim was, was to be a member of a race, right? I mean, that non sequitur was the, the first thing people should have noticed. But he was celebrated as just this white knight who came to the defense of beleaguered brown people everywhere, right? Really? I, yeah. I missed oh, that part of the... To a degree that is just, I mean, if you, if you looked on social media in the immediate aftermath of that, it was just, it was just a tsunami of moral and political confusion, really. It was like a, a nuclear bomb of identity politics. Well, what's interesting to me is I, I looked at that in preparation for today's talk, and um, it would seem the tide has changed. I, I looked at the YouTube clip, and I know that you've said in other places that YouTube seems to be a particularly bad cesspool for really vitriolic commentary at times. Mm. And I, I figured I'd scan it quickly to get a sense of like, what's the percentage breakdown? And I, I looked at almost 100 uh, comments, I believe, and I did not find a single one that was pro Ben Affleck. Yeah. I mean, people yeah. were making the points that you just made that he was essentially making your points for you um, in that when you start talking about ideas, people presume that you're trying to paint with a broad brush people, which you were not trying to do. It, it, so it, it might have changed since then. But at, in the immediate aftermath, there was a very pro Ben kind of reaction to it, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it continues. I mean, and it continues in a way that is quite shameful. So, for instance, the comic uh, Hassan Minaj, who just did the White House Correspondents' Dinner, so he's mm -hmm. he's now uh, the the one that Trump didn't attend, but his his stature has has risen among comics of late, and he just released a, a Netflix special yep. where he talks about this this issue just praising Ben Affleck to the skies and saying quite libelously that Bill in that exchange advocated for the, the, for a quote, rounding up Muslims and containing them as though, as though in concentration camps or at the very least internment camps, right? How this got past Netflix fact He stated that as a fact, as not, a as a, fact. not as a punchline, not no, as a no. joke. He as said a that fact. as a fact, Bill Maher said on camera, a YouTube clip viewed by millions of people, round them up. 
Yeah, the, this is yes, this is his position that the, he he wants Muslims rounded up and contained, right? And he didn't happily he didn't mention me by name. He was talking about Bill and and Ben in that episode, but it's just pure delusion and slander. It's a massive applause line, right? You know, in, in his world. So this is a kind of form of asymmetric warfare. Whenever I inadvertently misrepresent the the views of my opponents, I mean, no matter how uh, malicious the opponent, right? If I say something that gets their view wrong and it gets pointed out to me, I publicly apologize for it. I mean, so it's like, it's, I am absolutely scrupulous to represent their views faithfully. As they represent them themselves. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, because, so some of this gets fairly bloody, but when I'm pushing back against my critics, and again, no matter how malicious, I am always holding myself to the standard of articulating their position in a way that they couldn't find fault with, right? Mm -hmm. it's like, so it's like to say, so, so you believe X, and I'm always thinking that my opponent will actually sign off, would sign off on X, right? And, and then I can then go on and, and demonstrate what's wrong with their, with their view. We're dealing with people as, you know, so anyone who criticizes Islam as a, a doctrine, or it really anyone who touches any of these third rails that have become so fraught among liberals and progressives. So to, to talk about race, to talk about gender, to talk about really any of these, uh, these variables around which identity politics have been built, reliably produces people who, who think that defaming you at any cost is fair game. So they will attribute to you views that not only do you not hold, they are the opposite of the views you hold. They will make any attempt to make that stick. Do you think in their minds it's an ends justifies the means thing where they are so committed to their position and they are so utterly certain that their position is objectively right that they're saying, okay, I know he didn't say round them up, but I'm going to say that he said round them up because that will eliminate his credibility and the elimination of his credibility, even by a dishonest mechanism, serves such a higher good. Yeah. Do you think that's the calculus? Obviously, there's a range of cases here. And so the, the most charitable case is that there's some number of people who are just intellectually lazy and are, are just guilty of confirmation bias. They're misled. They hear a snippet of something which strikes them a certain way, and then they just run with it, right? And they, and they feel no intellectual or moral obligation to get their facts straight. Yep. Anyone can fall prey to that. I mean, if, you know, you know, I've been so critical of Donald Trump. If you show me a tweet that looks insane from him, you know, I'm not going to spend any time trying to figure out if it's really a tweet from him because he, all of his tweets have been insane. So I, you know, the chances this one's real is, is, is are very high. If revealed that it was fake, well, then I'll walk back my, you know, my forwarding of it or whatever. But everyone only has so much time in the day. And so it's easy to see how people get lured into just being lazy. Right. But then there are the people who consciously manufacture falsehoods you know, I think there are actually real just psychopaths in any movement, right? And there are people who just have no moral qualms in spreading lies, no matter how defamatory, no matter how likely they are to increase the security concerns of the people involved. Spreading the lie that someone is a racist or that they favor genocide against Muslims, say, which are, these are both lies that are just endlessly spread about me and Bill and, and you know, even former Muslims or Muslim reformers with whom I support. I mean, someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali or Majid Nawaz. I mean, people who are have excruciating security concerns 
their endless lies are told about them. And these lies have the effect of raising their security. It could concerns. jeopardize their yeah. lives. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. This is this is well understood by the people who are telling these lies. So, for instance, this is just you, you happen to catch me in a in a twenty four hour period where this has happened to me in a, in a fairly spectacular way. So, really, so yeah, I had um, Majid Nawaz, who's this brilliant and uh, uh, truly ethical. Uh, Muslim reformer on my podcast. He, and, he, and a reformed Muslim as well. He had been in prison for a period of time for radical activities. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So he's a former Islamist, which is uh, distinct from a jihadist. He was not a terrorist. He was not, but he was trying to, you know, he was part of an organization that was trying to s- spread the idea of a global caliphate. And they were trying to engineer coups in places like Pakistan and Egypt. Uh, and so he was, you know, doing fairly nefarious things. He was recruiting for this organization. And then spent four years in an Egyptian prison and got essentially deprogrammed in proximity to jihadists and and fellow Islamists, just understanding the kind of world they wanted to build and more deeply. And then he was also taken as a a prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International. And that it was the juxtaposition of that kind of ethical overture from the enemy, right? Because he at that time would have considered Amnesty to be the enemy. Oh, yeah. This is a Western liberal progressive organization. Now, all of a sudden, they're coming in and defending me, even though they they know I loathe everything they stand for, because that is what they do. That is consistent with their values. So that that got through to him. And who in the what organization in the Muslim world or the Islamist world does that? Right. So it's like it it was just the it broke the spell. Mm. And so he came out of prison and very soon thereafter so disavowed his Islamist roots. But did not disavow Islam, right? No. He's still a, he is still a practicing Muslim. He's at pains to say that he's not devout. He's not he's not holding himself up as an example of, of religiosity. But he he's a, he's identified as a Muslim. He's not an ex-Muslim. He's not uh, he's not claiming to be an atheist. And he started this counter-extremist think tank, the Quilliam Foundation in the UK, that has attracted theologians and other former Islamists and, and has a, a very active program of deprogramming extremists, you know, both jihadist and uh, otherwise. And this is just the most courageous and necessary work. I mean, of all the things that, hu- that human beings should be doing, especially people in the Muslim community, this is just, it has to be at the top of everyone's list. And yet he is demonized as an Uncle Tom and a native informant and by so-called moderate Muslims, right? Mm. And so he, he and I wrote a book together, which, which was initially a kind of debate. I mean, we're on, you know, I was the atheist criticizing Islam and talking about the link between the doctrine and terrorism. And he was arguing for a program of reform mm-hmm. and it was a very fruitful collaboration and a very um, useful introduction to the issue for, the, you know, for those who have read the book. And there's a there's a documentary coming out, you know, based on the book. And we did a, a speaking tour uh, in Australia together. I'm totally supportive of him. I mean, he's a he's a real friend now. And so he was on my podcast in January, and we're having a conversation about all these issues. And there's a part of the conversation where I'm essentially playing devil's advocate with him. And I and I and so he had had been talking about reform, and we're, we're at this point we're we're speaking specifically about the the migrant crisis in, in Europe, uh, born of the, the civil war in Syria, and just what to do about the, the millions of people who are pouring across the borders into Europe uh, at that point. And 
just the, the ethical challenges of that. And, and, you know, I'm on record both in that podcast and elsewhere saying that I think we should let, we have a moral obligation to let in, you know, all the Syrians we can properly vet. Uh, I, I talk about these people as the, the most unlucky people on earth. I am, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was against Trump's travel ban, right? And I have criticized that on television and on my podcast and in print. Yeah, you've been quite unequivocal about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and again, within this own, within this specific podcast made these points. I talk about secular and liberal Muslims being the most important people on earth and the people who, who you know, I, I would move to the front of the line to get U.S. citizenship if they wanted it if I had any influence there. So my views on this matter are, are very clear. And so there's a p- part in the conversation where I'm playing devil's advocate, and there, there had just been a terrorist attack in Germany with the, in the Christmas market where a jihadist in a van plowed into dozens of people and I think killed 12 and injured 50. And at one point I said to Majid, okay, so you've said many hopeful things thus far. I, I want to push back a little bit. I can well imagine that there are millions of people in Europe at this moment, in the aftermath of this Christmas market attack, who are thinking, why the fuck do we need more Muslims in our society? I mean, we, well, surely we have enough. Why not just not let anyone else in, right? So someone who's, who apparently has been doing this to all my podcasts, I only just noticed this time, but someone uh, in the Muslim community took a snippet of, of the audio starting with, why the fuck do we need more Muslims in our society, right? And then there's just, the, Maj's contribution here is just, he's just kind of nodding along saying, yes, you know, doing nothing to push back. I mean, just seeming to acquiesce to my, right. my, my position here. And he tweets this out, this, this minute of audio, you know, you know, witness, you know, Sam Harris's genocidal attitude toward Islam, toward Muslims and, and um, you know, Majid's support. And then all the usual suspects, Reza Aslan and, and Max Blumenthal, you know, the, the, the odious son of Sidney Blumenthal, who has never resisted an opportunity to lie about people like me and Ayan Hirsi Ali and, and Majid. Um, uh, all of them, just full court press, push this out. I mean, now we're talking about people who have Large platforms followers. of hundreds of thousands, you know, and, and, then, and that percolates down to all the people who have tens of thousands of people on Twitter. So millions of people re- receive this. Um, and this is just yesterday or in, yeah, yeah yeah this is this is now 48 hours ago and i'm seeing people from i'm seeing a writer from the nation also push it out and she says and and also like nearly docks me where she says well next time i see him at my favorite coffee house and she names the coffee house that i'm at rather frequently right i'll tell him what i think of him right so it's just it's the most irresponsible use of social media and in the case of people like Reza Aslan right he absolutely knows what my position is, and he knows he's lying about it. I mean, there's just way, way, way too much back and forth between me and him. And there, there is clearly a world of difference between what you had characterized as the most charitable case, which is this is just somebody who's incredibly lazy and doesn't research. This person very plainly oh, yeah. surgically removed something out of context, yes. very, very surgically, not an oopsie blunder kind of thing. No. Put it out there, and those who picked it up, presumably knowing a thing or two about both you and also the source, just spread it wantonly without any notion of checking to see if it was taken out of context. And the other thing that's crucial here is that even if you wanted to extend the most charitable interpretation to them, 
that it's a, it's a genuine mistake. The right? secondary forwarders, in yes, a sense. Yeah. yeah. Within 15 minutes, the hoax is revealed because right. I, I have, you know, nearly a million people following me on Twitter. Right. And I, you know, pushed back against it, you know, multiple times. And I sent a, a link to the timestamp to the, the beginning of the actual part of the conversation that reveals just yeah. what is being said. No apologies come from any of these. No people. retraction. Yeah, no retraction. Yeah. You know, they don't delete. And they Which just, you wouldn't they just expect from down. the person who did it because right. they did it quite wittingly. Yes. But the people who forwarded it to hundreds of thousands of people, having been made aware, would have a moral responsibility yeah. to walk that back. Because it does put you, it heightens the physical threat that you live under. Oh, yeah. Things like that. Now, it's we're probably either a double-digit number of months from software, of which we've seen the first prototypes already, yeah. that would allow somebody to basically sample your voice, of which there are many, many examples, and basically do a marionette thing where they have you say whatever they want. But these tools are going to be out there and they're going to be misusable by anybody. Yeah, And you could be made to say, I could be made to say the president, anybody could be made to say absolutely anything. And I wonder if that's going to kind of in a perverse way help things because audio quotes will from that point forward just simply not being taken seriously. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really worried about that, but I do actually see the silver line and you just pointed to. I think that it will be so subversive that people will realize that all you can trust is the actual source. Yeah. Right. It'll so, be so misused so quickly. I imagine something similar has happened with Photoshop now. Sure. Where that yeah. you people just don't use photos as forensic evidence in the same way and they just yeah. they they're fairly skeptical about what they see in, a, in an image when it counts yeah i mean so i mean if you just imagine if you saw if someone forwarded to you a photo of trump in some insane circumstance your your first thought before forwarding it would be wait a minute is this photoshopped you know yeah we'll, we'll have to be that circumspect about audio and even video. So now they have the the the, the mouth linking fakery, the completely fake audio, which again sounds exactly like the person's actual voice, can be made to seem like it's coming out of his or her mouth. You add the visual cue, and it look it always what happens in audio happens next in video. Yeah. Well, to sort of go a little bit bigger picture for a moment, I'm delighted to be talking to you now because there's almost an uncanny overlap between the subjects you've dedicated your life to understanding and those that are discussed in my novel after on. The main topic of the book is super AI. You're very widely quoted on this subject. You, mm. you gave a great TED talk about it uh, almost exactly a year ago. Another major theme in the book is consciousness. You spent an entire decade exploring consciousness full time. I'm not sure if that's an overstatement, but it's an approximation. A connected major topic is neuroscience. You are one, or you're a neuroscientist. And yet another major theme is nihilistic terrorism. And of course, you're now one of the most outspoken people in the U.S. on this subject. I think the only lifelong focus of yours that's not a major obsession of the book is jujitsu. Uh -huh. So we will keep the jujitsu talk to an absolute minimum here. Sorry, jujitsu fans. This just isn't your episode. But I hope the rest of you will join us here on Ours tomorrow for more about Sam's personal history, and also toward the end of that installment, we'll explore the research that Sam did while getting his neuroscience PhD at UCLA. Now, if you can't wait to hear the whole episode, or if you'd just like to browse my podcast's archive of three dozen episodes with various thinkers, founders, and scientists, just head on over to my site at after-on.com, or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. And there you'll find it all. 
Finally, before we close, I'd like to mention that throughout October, Medium.com is running a series of essays that I've written on the subject of existential risk, which is to say the grim yet perversely fascinating possibility that our technological creations like super AI and synthetic biology might just annihilate us. Although I'm of course biased, I do think I have a novel take on all this and present some arguments and analytic lenses that are new to this important discussion. If this might interest you, please go to medium.com slash at symbol Rob Reed. I apologize, that's a sort of complicated URL. So again, it's medium.com, then a slash, followed by the at symbol, followed by Rob Reed, R-E-I-D, by the way. At least two articles in the series should already be up by the time you're hearing this, and the third should go up sometime this week or at the very latest next Monday. I should note that Medium is running this in their editorially curated paid members-only section. The good news is they give everyone access to a few free articles per month with essentially zero friction. That's it for now. I hope you'll join me tomorrow for more with Sam Harris.